Good morning, Christ the King. Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of the Scriptures to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. As you turn there, let me tell you that it is a, a privilege and a blessing once again to be serving us from the pulpit while Eric is, is away. If you recall, uh, a couple weeks ago we were looking at the passage just before this one. It was the last two miracles of the ten miracles we've seen in chapters 8 and 9. And now Matthew gives us, if you will, a sort of summary statement of, of, of that section. So let's hear now God's Word together. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray with me. Our gracious Father of the harvest, we, we ask this morning that this word would be transformative for us. I pray, Lord, that you would set me out of the way so that you would lift the message off, off the pages of, of the Bible and thrust it into our hearts. Transform us by it, by the power of your Spirit. We ask these things in your Son's strong and holy name. Amen. This last January 6th, I'm sure you remember the American people watched. They were glued to their screens as a number of their fellow citizens formed a mob that broke into the nation's capital. And since then, whenever Americans return to their screens, it's not difficult for them to find the ongoing debate about how we should characterize that crowd. Similar debates have been going on about how to characterize the, the crowd that burned down a Minneapolis police station just over a year ago, and about other, other protests that have gone on the last year. As we have watched and, and analyzed these, these throngs of unsatisfied people, we circulate questions like, like why did they do this? What were they hoping for? What made them so, so angry? How will these different crowds be, be satisfied? Did they go too far? Not far enough. Would I join that crowd? Perhaps one of the, one of the easier questions to ask would just be, well, what do these people say that, that they want? But I think there's a harder question, a more important question. I think it's the question that Jesus would have asked about, about these crowds. And I'm confident in saying that just because it's the question that Jesus asks of the crowds in our passage this morning, which is, what are these desperate crowds truly 
desperate for, whether they realize it or not. Our passage this morning tells us about how Jesus characterizes the crowds. And as we, as we learn about the nature of, of the crowds, what gets revealed then is the nature of Jesus' mission. So this is why I titled the sermon this morning, The Mission According to Matthew. Because Matthew's purpose in giving us this, this short little text is actually to help us understand the, the grand big picture of Jesus' mission. By the mission, I, I mean the whole project of, of Christ, the whole mission of Jesus to the world, the reason He came, the reason He died, the reason He rose, the reason He is sitting in heaven until He returns. It's the same reason why He gave us the co-mission at the end of, of Matthew. And that is to make a people for Himself, to, to build a, a bride, to grow a body, to construct a temple, and the, and the metaphors go on. In our text this morning, Matthew gives us, in short, the what, the why, and the how of Jesus' mission. So that can be, be our outline this morning. The text summarizes for us Jesus' mission, the what, his motivation, the why, and, and, and his means, the how, his mission, his motivation, and his means. And so first, look with me, put your eyes on verse, on verse 35. This is, this is the what of Jesus' mission. Now his ministry was, was right, three years long or so, and so, of course, most of what Jesus actually did isn't recorded for us in, in the Gospels. And so if you've ever wondered about how Jesus spent his time, this is where Matthew gives you the answer. The, the, the things we see him doing in the Gospels are just the same things that he kept doing off stage, if, if you will. In short, Jesus was a traveling preacher and, and healer. And he was apparently famous enough that, that whenever he, he came to all these little towns and villages and, and walked into the synagogue, it was assumed that, that they would give him the pulpit, so to speak. But then notice in verse 35 that he was also, also healing. So what Matthew does here is he basically just summarizes the whole book so far. Because since Jesus began his ministry, he's basically just done two things. Chapters 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, proclamation. Chapters 8 and 9, miracles, healing. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Jesus brought his message through his words and through his works. He said the kingdom was here, and then he showed that the kingdom was here. Therefore, repent. The miracles, then, are, are just as much a, a declaration of the kingdom's arrival as, as the verbal proclamation was. So let, let, let's think about, for a moment, this, this word and deed message of Jesus. Look again at, at verse 35. Notice the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. So if we slow down, that probably strikes us as a sort of interesting way to put it, right? Because we usually expect something like the gospel of Jesus Christ, or just the good news, or the gospel. So what does Matthew mean here by using the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom? 
Well, in, in Matthew's ancient context, this actually uh, would have been the, the more normal way to use this word. And, and the reason for that is because this word we have for good news or gospel, it, it was usually uh, used to describe a, a political or, or a kingdom announcement. Usually the declaration that the kingdom had been victorious in battle and now the king is on his way back to his city or his kingdom with the spoils of war. And this is precisely what Jesus' preaching is. It is the capital K kingdom announcement. With his authoritative words and his miracles, he declares over and over, I will win. I'll defeat that sickness. I'll, I'll fix that paralysis. I'll, I'll overcome the, the chaos on the stormy sea. And, and in my new heavens and new earth, there won't, even, there won't even be a sea. I'll cast the demons into the lake of fire. I'll, I'll overcome the devil's oppression. And, and watch, I'll even touch and overcome that death. I will win. I will defeat the gates of Hades, and I will bring in my kingdom. That's what Jesus spends his time doing, showing and, and telling that. And then he goes and he actually does it. And we see him at the cross and the resurrection victorious. And now the king is on his way back with the spoils of that, of that victory. And he's sent on ahead of him a number of these spoils with, with the Holy Spirit. These are the spoils that he anticipated by his ministry. The spoils of cleanliness, of forgiveness, of eternal life, of spiritual sight. The, the a freedom from, from the devil's oppression. This is the good news of the kingdom. So the essential mission of Jesus was to proclaim this victory to fulfill it, and then deliver the spoils. And so, this is still been an ongoing mission. The mission we read about here is, is the same mission that's still in progress. And to date, the king continually sends out his heralds, us, to proclaim this good news always and everywhere. So the rest of our text then gives us two metaphors the, the sheep and, and that of the harvest, to describe the, the motivation and the means of this, of this mission. So look now at verse, at verse 36. Matthew tells us that the burden, the weight, the motivation that propelled Jesus' mission was his burden for the shepherdless crowd. So think about the crowd for a moment. We often overlook it as, as actually one of the central characters in, in Matthew's story. Sometimes it's marveling at Jesus. Sometimes people are skeptical. Sometimes they have mixed opinions. And eventually, of course, they're, they're hostile to Jesus. And, and the point that arises then is that the, the crowd's attitude at the end of the day is determined by the extent to which Jesus matches their desperate expectations the extent to which he satisfies them, feeds them loaves and fishes, amazes them with, with signs, or excites their, their frustration with the establishment. 
with the religious elite or, or with Rome. The fickleness and, uh, of the crowd, of their amazement and their disdain of Jesus arises from the fact that he looks something like the leader they've dreamed of, but he never, he never quite fulfills their, their agenda. But isn't this just always the way that, that Israel has related to Yahweh? See, for Matthew, when he speaks of the crowd, you can usually replace it with the phrase, the people of Israel. And, and when you do that, you, you realize that this crowd looks a lot like the people who grumbled in the wilderness, who, who then praised God for the manna, but then built a golden calf. Right? It's the same people who, who came to Samuel and demanded that he appoint for them a king so they can look like all the nations around them, and the same people who then repented and rejoiced over David's faithfulness, but then were divided and followed his wicked sons. So if this is that, that same crowd, if this is the crowd that kills the prophets, the one that Jesus at other points curses, the same crowd that prefers Barabbas, then Jesus' compassion is nothing less than the persistent, committed, covenant kindness that God continues to show his creatures despite themselves over and over. And that's why when we read the Gospels, it's often so easy for us to, to put ourselves in the crowd. So as we read the interactions between Jesus and, and the crowd, we should feel like we're looking into a, a mirror of, of sorts. And, and Matthew is showing us how Jesus persistently preaches to our fickle hearts. As we think about then the, the mission of Jesus, right, before we go getting all excited about going on mission for Jesus, we first have to remember the humble truth that we are the mission of Jesus. That first Jesus came to us, had compassion on us, despite our place in the crowd. And that is, is, is part of what should motivate our participating in Jesus' ongoing mission. That is, Jesus' compassion for us. So think about now this idea of compassion for, for a few minutes. The word here literally means that, that Jesus felt for the people in his guts. His guts were twisted over what he saw. And, and what he saw was a needy people desperate for, for someone, anyone, to lead them, feed them, and protect them. In other words, they were waiting for a shepherd because their, their present shepherds were failures. So this is a not-so-subtle indictment against the fact that the religious leaders were not only not properly feeding and, and protecting the flock, but these, these so-called spiritual leaders were actually harassing and oppressing the flock. Jesus also calls, calls the crowd helpless. He, he was burdened by the fact that they couldn't lift the pharisaical yoke with all its unbiblical burdens. Jesus' compassion feels the sting of the tragedy that the under-shepherds he put over God's flock 
had abandoned their posts. They traded in their God-given shepherd's crook for the dung of prestige and power that came with the religious authority. But even deeper than this, of course, and the cause for this, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, was that the devil and his dominion had a stronghold among the Jews. They were blinded from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus because they were locked behind the gates of Hades, so to speak, and so they need a shepherd to lead them out. Now, it would be a mistake to think here that the metaphor of a, of a shepherd just has to do with how gentle and, and caring uh, and kind a leader should be. That much is true. But in the ancient world of, of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, everywhere, even outside the Bible, a shepherd was just a common metaphor used to describe the ideal king. Because what is a king except for one who can lead, feed, and protect his people? It's no coincidence that that in God's providence, Israel's greatest king started out as a shepherd boy. David's childhood labor was a prophecy about what all of Israel's great kings would look like, and so about what Jesus would look like. Look at the front of your bulletins at the passage from, from Ezekiel. That all this, is, it, this is why the, the great son of David that the prophets looked forward to is called the great shepherd of God's people, the shepherd of Israel. And of course, when Psalm 23 tells us that God is David's shepherd, it's because the Lord is the king of kings. So here is Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of David. He is the shepherd of shepherds come in human flesh, come with the rights to Israel's throne. Israel's greatest shepherd king is now on the, on the scene declaring the final victory of his kingdom and expressing shepherd-like compassion over his wandering flock. And we know, of course, that that Jesus' kingdom is not just Israel, but it's a worldwide kingdom. And as I said, the shepherd metaphor is is all over ancient societies. See, people have always pined after someone to lead them, feed them, and protect them. And like the crowds, the pattern of all people has been to idealize a king in their own image. The Greek philosopher Plato, he wrote about and and longed for a philosopher king. Imagine that. One who understood wisdom and and justice and goodness better than anyone else, and that's what qualified him to be the king. And there's so many examples we can list through history, but just think ahead even to our own democracy. right? For all of its great benefits, and and for better or for worse, it works out to be a system most of the time where most people vote for the person who looks, sounds, and thinks like themselves. The ongoing problem, though, is that the crowds expect these leaders to lift them up out of their misery, and of course, they can't. No human shepherd can lead you out of your land of misery. 
No human shepherd can, can give you spiritual food so that you will never hunger again. No human shepherd can protect you from the devil or save you from death. So the leader that we pick from amongst ourselves in our own image cannot be, will never be the answer to a world full of sheep without a shepherd. That is the human plight. So in the New Testament, God became man in order to be the divine shepherd king that the world has been begging for ever since Adam decided to be a king unto himself. And of course, that's, that's the reason for all of this. Right? We, we long for a leader in our image because the ultimate ideal king in the human mind is the self. That is the great insurrection of the human race. The idea of, of self-shepherding, of total autonomy to lead and feed and protect yourself according to your own labor and, and values and beliefs. What a pity. It should twist our guts that we are surrounded by, by crowds of people harassed and helpless and hopeless so long as they are trying to shepherd themselves. Does it burden you that you can introduce them to the shepherd that every person just does long for? That is the burden, the motivation of the king and his mission, and so it should be ours as well. Jesus' compassion, it, it does not go out for the crowd the same way that that we might feel for a lost puppy. Okay, Jesus' compassion feels and carries the weight of a world that has lost its way. His compassion for, for the kingless means that in his guts he feels the weight of that, that hopeless, shepherdless feeling every person is prone to. Right? His heart goes out for those who, who feel like life is stagnant or, or without direction. He feels our frustration over, over how the devil's constant temptations can feel stronger than, than our will to obey. His, his compassion goes out for those who are afraid over, over how they will afford to feed themselves. And the truly tragic situation for every single person is that their deep feeling of hopelessness is absolutely true. There's just no way you can protect, feed, or lead yourself out of misery and into joy. Out of a, a life of meaninglessness into a life of significance. But Jesus' compassion carries the weight of that tragedy all the way to the cross. And he overcomes it and becomes our conquering, shepherding king. We've all felt, at one point or another, that the misery of trying to shepherd ourselves. Here the Bible reminds us that this, this just is the misery for everyone in the crowd who don't come to Jesus by, by faith. The motivation of the king's mission is, is this misery of the masses. When you look at the crowds, then, however else it is that you characterize them, don't miss 
that you are looking ultimately at, at those who desperately need a shepherd. So we have the mission, the motivation. What about the means? Jesus switches metaphors here from, from shepherding to, to harvesting. So right off the bat, here's what we can't miss about the harvesting metaphor. It, it, it means that, that a lot of work, if, if the harvest is, is here, it means that a lot of work has already been done. There's been tilling and sowing and watering. So, so what Jesus says, uh, uh, this is what Jesus says in, in John 4, right? the Father has been working on this same crop since, since the beginning, and, and now the harvest time is, is here. So what this means is, is that the ripeness of the harvest is not a surprise. Right, so we might have the tendency to, to look at this text and to see the sense of urgency that Jesus has here and then to think of him like a, a panicked landowner who forgot to hire workers for, for the harvest. Now he needs these laborers at the last minute because, because the work is just too much for him to handle. You know, it's, it's a mistake to think that the number of people who, who come to Christ ultimately depends on the number of human laborers there are. God is not, not wringing his hands as he waits upon the human efforts of evangelism and mission to finish what Jesus couldn't get to. In the same way, God is, God is not dependent upon our prayers for the harvest to be successful. Jesus does not tell us to pray for the harvest because God is so insecure that he needs a world full of praying Christians cheering and urging him on. Not at all. The mission of the king is not a half measure that depends on people to finish it. No, what is abundantly clear is that the all-powerful God of the harvest, the God of history, has, has ordained chosen to use his power to bring people to himself in a particular way for his glory through a particular set of means. The metaphor of the harvest teaches us that the king's unstoppable mission is designed to work through prayer and people. Prayer and people. The harvest in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it refers to, to the great end-time event when, when God will, will gather the whole world in and, so to speak, divide it into wheat and chaff. So, so to say that the harvest is here is to say that the last days are here. So it's harvest time just translates to that same refrain of Jesus' teaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent. God's, God's in-gathering is here. The, the days of God's harvest is here, and it's a process that begins with the church's evangelistic calling to go into the world and summon the sheep. So God's great end-time eschatological gathering and glorification of the church begins with and involves you opening your mouth and sharing the gospel. When Jesus characterizes the crowds as sheep, what we are to understand is that what 
the desperate crowds are truly desperate for is a shepherd. But now when he characterizes the crowds as a harvest, as, as a field full of wheat, it tells us that what the desperate crowds are also truly desperate for is you. For, for harvesters to tell them that the king has come, that there's a good shepherd to lead them. That the ultimate justice has been delivered by Jesus. We are the king's missions, the, the means of the king's mission. And it's a calling that we have, whether we like it or not. Look at the text again. Look at this interesting thing that happens at, at, at the end here. Jesus, he asked the disciples to pray. Right? And then in the next passage, the prayer gets answered. The laborers are there. But who are they? They're the disciples. Don't let yourself think that, that praying for laborers is your way of getting out of, of having to do the labor. Right? Of course, we're all called to various kinds of degrees uh, and, and places of labor in the harvest, but to be sure, we are all called both to the prayer and to the actual labor. But brothers and sisters, the labor to which you are called is an invitation to be a part, to participate in the greatest mission, the greatest enterprise, the greatest quest, the greatest task from which all others derive their significance. That is God's grand mission to the world. You just don't have anything higher to commit your prayers to. And history confirms for us that, that prayer, especially in the context of hostile societies, is, is the catalyst that God has chosen to grow his church. That's how the church began in Acts. The church was born out of prayer. It grew out of those earliest prayer meetings. Right? Today, prayer in the face of hostility is at the root of the rapidly growing Chinese church. Because God tells us that prayer is his chosen means, it should not surprise us, right? Again, that in America, the Great Awakenings began out of prayer meetings. Christ the King, your own history tells you this is true. This church began out of prayer about a potential outpost of the kingdom in Conshohocken. And, and your own heart for the lost has grown out of our corporate prayers on Wednesday evenings, whether in our small groups or at the once a month prayer meeting we had as our, our pattern was before COVID. Jesus' compassion for the wandering sheep, the ripe harvest, should motivate us to the missional means of prayer. So finally, let's think about just what happens when we participate by prayer or through laboring in, in God's mission. When Jesus gives us the, the great commission <clears throat> at the end of the book, it's a commission to proclaim nothing less than the very one and same message that he was proclaiming when he was on the earth. Same kingdom. 
So when you go out into the field of, of the world, carrying with you this, this all-significant news that the king has won and there are spoils to be had, that the good shepherd can be a shepherd to all who come to him by faith, when you labor, you are a participant in the Trinity's mission to the world. You are not, so to speak, a third-party contractor that, that God hires out in order to finish what Jesus couldn't get to. Right? As, as though you could decide to freely engage or disengage from that contract. You know, just as much as you are saved and intimately adopted to the Father through Jesus, so also the Father's harvest is a work of Jesus that he accomplishes intimately in the world through you. You are a cog in the machine, a part of Jesus's mission, the king's mission. That means that there just is no such thing as vain labor. And it means there is no such thing as messing up or getting in the way of the mission because you stumbled over your words. However, as Paul learned, there, there is such a thing as, as kicking against the goads. That is, there, there is such a thing as a hopeless resistance to the irrevocable fact that you are called into the harvest. You are the means God has chosen for his mission to the world, why would you resist it? People of God, you know how to characterize the crowds. You know what they are truly desperate for. You know what or, or who it is that they so deeply and desperately long for. So let's share it with them. Let's pray. Our good Father of the harvest, our great and good shepherd, we ask Lord, that you would send laborers into your harvest. We earnestly pray, Lord, that you would send laborers into your harvest. We pray, Lord, that you would give us twisted guts over the shepherdless, hopeless state of the crowds. We ask, Lord, that you would, you would show us where you are the good shepherd to us. Remove from our hearts the temptation to, to be our own shepherds. Grant us, Lord, the ultimate beautiful grace of being involved in your great plan of redemption for the world. Thank you, Lord, for all of these precious and sweet truths. We ask that you would continually transform us by them. We pray these things in your Son's holy name. Amen.